This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The 2021 Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival was held in Aotearoa, Dunedin, our UNESCO City of Literature, from the 6th until the 9th of May. In this podcast series, we share recordings from these sessions with you. In the historical novel, Germany, Catherine Chidgey talks to Lynn Freeman about her engrossing and unsettling latest novel, Remote Sympathy, presented by the Centre for the Book, University of Otago. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. I'm Lynn Freeman, host of RNZ National's art show, Standing Room Only, and I could not be more delighted to be chairing this session with our guest Catherine Chidgey at the Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival about the historical novel. Germany is our theme. Uh, they will be squeezing in some questions because Catherine is really, really busy <laughs> with lots of things on. Um, some useful information before we begin. We would like to thank the sponsor of the session, University of Otago Division of Humanities, um, errant phone calls during the next hour will not be welcome, so please check your phones even if you think they're off. Now, I'm sure you'll also have questions for Catherine. I've been doing this for 40 years, and always uh, at least one person at the end will come up with a question that I think, dang, that, I really should have thought of that. So <laughs> that will be in your hands, and that will be for the last 10 minutes of the session. We'll have a roving mic. It's a wonderful opportunity. It's a rare thing to have a writer here to ask questions um, directly to, and Catherine is very f- forthright and open, so take that opportunity. Am I? Yes, you are. <laughs> there are none so blind as those who will not see. The most deluded people are those who choose to ignore what they already know. I didn't know the second part of that saying until I went looking for it. Catherine Chidgey returns to Nazi Germany for her latest novel. That in itself takes courage. Um, she shared with us a disturbing story in her earlier novel, The Wish Child, remarkable novel. In Remote Sympathy, we enter into a labour camp where three characters tell their stories. Are they reliable narrators? Are they not? Remote Sympathy is a finalist in this year's Jan Medlicott Acorn Prize for Fiction. It came as no surprise whatsoever. Catherine Kakite, welcome. Lovely to see you. Kia ora. Thank you, Lynn. Good morning. Uh, we had a little chat outside the gallery before we came in about the title of Remote Sympathy. And I... Actually, I'll get the context of it here, Catherine, because it's such an interesting phrase and I hadn't heard of it before. Mm, I hadn't heard of it before either, but I stumbled across it when I was um, reading about cancer research in general, but in particular cancer research in Germany in the early 20th century. And I came across the phrase remote sympathy um, in some writings by a a Scottish surgeon who had uh, theorised that you could um, treat illness by um, means of remote sympathy. This was one method of treating something that had gone wrong in the body um, by applying the treatment to some part of the body some distance away and and the treatment would kind of vibrate through the body to the, the point of disease and so the the disease would be cured by remote sympathy. And as soon as I read that phrase, you know, that that light bulb went on. Um, I love those moments when I'm researching and something clicks and I know straight away, ah, yes, the reason that I'm reading this is because it belongs in my novel and the reason that I'm reading this particular piece of of, um, writing is because that is the title of the novel. So I I came across that phrase quite early on and... um, as soon as that 
click happened, it kind of started to inform the rest of the book and the major kind of um, imagery in the book, which is that tension between proximity and distance. And um, I, I play with that in all sorts of ways throughout the book. So, you know, one of the most obvious being the fact that there were 10 high-ranking SS families living on the border of Buchenwald concentration camp. There was just a very small sort of patch of trees, this patch of forest, um, separating the families and their luxury sort of ski lodge type houses from the camp, which is unthinkable, really. Um, and, and yet these families and, and the mothers raising their children in those homes could pretend that they didn't know what was going on and could, you know, see this little neighbourhood, this little enclave as an ideal place to raise children. Yeah. So was that... I mean, was there a starting point for this, Catherine? I mean, you've been thinking of Germany now for such a long time and you've, you've been there, you know, it's kind of part of your DNA just about. But, but was there a, a moment or a, or a person? I mean, at least one of the characters here is based on, mm-hmm. on somebody who existed. There was one really important starting point, which was quite a few years ago. Um, so it was in 1996 when I was living in Berlin and I was studying there and... Um, I had signed up for a paper for foreign students about German history. And uh, one of the reasons I'd signed up for that paper was because it offered free little jaunts around Germany. So our professor, who was a professor of history, um, took our class, there were about 20 of us, on these fully paid trips around Germany. So we went to, you know, romantic little villages and what have you, but we also went to Buchenwald. Oh, and he showed us, he, he took us on a walking tour um, around our university campus and showed us the building where, you know, that was where they um, did medical experiments and, you know, these terrible things had happened where we were having lectures. So that was kind of really confronting and strange and something that I, as a New Zealander, h- had never experienced the like of. So this trip that we did to Buchenwald, um, we stayed... Overnight there, we slept in the former SS barracks, um, one of the original buildings that are still standing there, although all the prisoner barracks have been raised the way um, it is with most concentration camps. Uh, But yeah, so we slept there. um, And the thing that really stuck in my mind, which was was, um, a seed for the book, was um, the site of an oak tree that was at the centre of the camp. And um, it's just a stump now, but um, this oak tree had stood there for hundreds of years. And when the prisoners began to, uh, the first prisoners began to clear the hillside to build the camp, um, they were instructed to leave this particular oak tree standing because of its connection with um, the revered German poet Goethe. So um, according to local legend, Goethe had, well, it's not legend, he loved walking um, those hills and was particularly associated with the Ettersberg, the hill that Buchenwald was built on. Uh, And uh, many of his plays had been performed outdoors on the Ettersberg. And and yes, the legend was that he used to um, sit in the shelter of this um, big old oak tree 
and the beech forest. Buchenwald means beech forest and compose poetry there. So when the camp was going to be built, the locals of Weimar, which is the, the town at the base of the Ettersberg, um, just a few kilometres from the camp, they um, wrote outraged letters to protest um, not the fact of the camp itself, but the original name that had been suggested for the camp, which was Ettersberg. And they said because that name is so closely um, and you know, irrevocably associated with Goethe, we cannot possibly have a, a labour camp called Ettersberg. You know, that was one of those moments in my research too where, where I started to think about the closeness of Weimar to the camp and yet the distance um, between the people who lived there and the people they felt absolutely no sympathy for who were going to be murdered there. Anyway, so getting back to the tree, um, the tree was left standing uh, and the legend attached to the tree as well as Goethe having sat there and, and written poetry there was that if the tree fell, then so too would Germany. And in August 1944, there was one, the only Allied bombing attack on the camp happened. It, it had never been bombed because there were so many prisoners living there. Like there were um, arms factories right alongside it, but the um, administrators of the camp believed that they were perfectly safe, and their families living in this little neighbourhood were perfectly safe because there were thousands of prisoners living there, and they they believed that the camp would never be bombed because of that. So there was um, a very kind of precise uh, raid on the factories in August 44, and the tree caught on fire and burned to the ground and had to be, or was felled. So just this um, stump remains. And our professor on this trip told us this story, and that really stuck with me too, the, the idea that the Germans kind of revered this spot, and the SS revered that tree and revered Goethe and wanted to protect it, but wouldn't protect the people who were living around it. Um, and the prisoners kind of saw the tree too as a symbol of a Germany that was long lost. You know, this, this sort of the, the noble Germany of poets and thinkers, the Germany of Goethe, that, you know, that Germany no longer existed. So um, when the tree was bombed, I, I talk about this in the book, a lot of the prisoners took chips of wood as, as, as relics to keep. Um, and my main character, Leonard, does this, he takes a chip of the tree. There was also an amazing prisoner, a man called Bruno Arpitz, who was kind of this Renaissance man. He was um, an actor, he was a poet, he was a playwright, he was an artist, he was a sculptor. And he managed, managed to salvage a, a piece of heartwood from the tree, so a block from the tree, and he carved this amazing sculpture from it called The Last Face, which he based, he, he worked in the pathology building um, in, in the camp, so he saw the dead as they were processed, and he based this sculpture on the faces of the dead, so it's kind of one, one face to commemorate the, the many who died, and that was one of the things that I, knew, when I read about that sculpture, I knew I really needed to, to track it down and to see it in person, so I did that when I went to um, Germany to research the book. And yeah, there, there seemed to be something really that, that really spoke to me quite powerfully about that tree and about it being, you know, a revered German oak tree and everything that it, 
that it stood for. So that was definitely, um, to get back to your original question, that was definitely a, a powerful starting point for the book that I tucked away for years and years and years thinking I want to use this somehow. And the other starting point, sorry, this is quite a long answer. The other starting point was when I was researching The Wish Child and I was reading about um, medical research in World War II Germany and started to read about cancer research in particular. So that wasn't part of The Wish Child, but it, but it interested me. And it was then that I started thinking about a story about um, a German part Jewish doctor who is kind of forced into this impossible situation of, of having to resurrect a machine that he invented early in his career to treat cancer that he now no longer believes in. And he's kind of forced to, to rebuild this machine to um, treat the wife of this powerful SS man um, who's been diagnosed with cancer, even though he knows um, that the machine doesn't work. Yeah, the cancer research in Germany at that time was kind of offering up all sorts of quack treatments. You know, the same as we have available today. Things like heliotherapy and um, Chinese rhubarb and fruit juice injections and, and electrotherapy, which is the thing that I kind of seized on as being the, the, the quack treatment that um, I wanted my doctor to, to be working with. You know, Hitler's mother had died of cancer. And so Hitler was very supportive of all these potential treatments being funded to the tune of, you know, hundreds of thousands of Reichsmarks. So those kind of treatments were allowed to flourish. And there was also a huge um, anti-smoking campaign, which um, when you look at the, the posters for it, seems very modern. You know, it's talking about secondhand smoke and um, industrial exposure to carcinogens. And yes, on the one hand, it does seem very modern, but you also need to understand that their motivation for that campaign was to keep German men well and, and able to fight and to breed. So there's this kind of sinister kind of... Um, tone to that whole anti-smoking campaign. But yeah, so that was when I started thinking about electrotherapy and about the machine that my doctor invents. Leonard's, you know, you, you st we start with Leonard, we meet him as an idealistic young man who's excited. I want to know if the transparent man actually existed because that was really riveting to me. Yes. But his intentions were good. You know, his intentions were as, as a, a medical man to try and save lives. It was important to him. Mm -hmm. uh, and along the the route he's had to compromise his, his morals, he's had to collaborate essentially to survive, and that, that was not an, an uncommon story, but a tough one for him. Yeah. I mean, as you wrote, Leonard, did you, do you have sympathy for him? You can read him in different, in mm. different ways, and the way you structure this is he is uh, writing letters, almost like a confessional, I think, mm. to his daughter. Yeah, he is. I definitely have sympathy for Leonard. I have sympathy for all of the characters, even, um, even my Nazi officer, you can read him in different ways, and each one of the characters is kind of complicit to varying degrees in, in the persecution of the innocent. And with Leonard, yes, he did he did start out um, building this machine full of hope and full of um, good intentions that this might be the thing that you know that that saves the world, that eradicates this the scourge of cancer. 
But there's also a little bit of ego in there too. You know, there's there's also a dash of him wanting to be the saviour and him wanting to sort of make his name um, and to have the kind of life that, you know, he's only dreamt of until then. Yeah, I'm not interested in writing kind of black and white characters. Those uh, shades of grey are, are where the interest um lies for me. Oh, I mean, he's really quite self-aware in, in, in many ways, isn't he? Which is not necessarily the case for all of your characters. I think he, mm-hmm. he can assess himself. He can look back when he's writing about, you know, we, we ate this food and all the other the thin men around the, as it labour camp starved and we feasted on, you yeah. know, it was bread and jam or something like that, something minor, you know. He's, yeah. he's in, incredibly self-aware and I have to respect him for that. He is self-aware and he carries a lot of guilt about... His actions, but also where he kind of accidentally ended up in, in the hierarchy of the camp, because there was a hierarchy, and I guess that wasn't something that I'd really realised before I researched it. So at Borkenwald, there was a very powerful um, faction led by the communist prisoners. So there was a sort of communist underground um, resistance happening at Borkenwald, and because most of the communist prisoners were native Germans, German-speaking. They were put in positions of power by the SS, who very quickly realised, we can't possibly run this whole kind of um, set-up. We've kind of poured thousands and thousands and thousands of men into um, this this labour camp, but we can't possibly run it. There aren't enough of us and we can't really be bothered. We just want to sit around drinking cognac and smoking cigars anyway. So they put... Uh, German prisoners in positions of power, and that meant that these men, mainly the communist prisoners, um, had enormous control over things like the lists of prisoners who were um, going to be sent on to the death camps. So Buchenwald was really um, a transit camp, and a lot of people didn't stay there very long before they were put on a list and sent on to, you know, work in the mines that meant certain death or sent on to Auschwitz if they were Jewish. And the communist prisoners were also in charge of the camp kitchens, for instance, and did all the cooking and, and, and were responsible for handing out the, the rations in the prisoners' barracks. So Leonard, being a, a German prisoner and also being a prisoner who um, Dietrich, the SS officer, wanted to protect so he could save his wife, he was kind of towards the top of that pecking order. And as a doctor who couldn't say he was a doctor in the camp um, because Dietrich wanted to keep that quiet, did not, or mostly did not, treat the men who were suffering around him. And he's very aware of that when he's writing these letters to his daughter. And he's kind of trying to explain himself. All three of my main characters are, are trying to explain themselves and explain their actions. And he's trying to explain himself to his daughter, but also, I think, to make sense of it to himself. Mm. Yeah. Well, this might be the perfect time for a reading. A reading, sure. Yeah. So I thought I would just read to you from the very start of the book, which is Leonard's voice. And it starts with that figure, the transparent man that Lynn mentioned. Um, We might talk a little bit about him. Yes. Yeah. So this is from Letters, written by Dr. Leonard Weber to his daughter. Frankfurt am Main, September 1946. Look at the picture, Lotta. The palm and garden in midwinter. How pretty the trees are, their branches sugary with snow. I have a pile of pictures just as pretty, 
My neighbour gave me a stack of old calendars, and so, in the absence of any other paper, I'll write to you on the backs of all the vanished years. Did your mother ever tell you that we met at a museum in Dresden? It was 1930, and I was studying medicine and working on my machine that would save the world. Recently, I've thought about returning there to the place where I first caught sight of her, but the museum is in ruins now, the exhibit we visited destroyed. A mass of melted wire and plastic and bone, buried in the rubble like some strange fossil. I remember the ripple of her black hair, her butter-yellow dress. During my studies, I'd read about the early therapeutic uses of electricity, Mediterranean torpedo fish applied to the temple for a headache. The limbs of hopeless paralytics shocked back to movement. I'd read, too, of more recent experiments in America and France and Italy, where electrotherapy promised relief from epilepsy and anemia, neuralgia and chorea, and, some suggested, even cancer. But it was the 18th century writings of John Hunter, the great Scottish surgeon, that sparked the idea for my machine. His theory that the cure as well as the disease could pass through a person by means of remote sympathy. That the energetic power produced in one part of the body could influence another part some distance away. Each evening in the parlour, I sketched out my plans for the sympathetic vitalizer and I listened to recordings of Lotta Lehmann as I worked, partly to keep myself awake, and partly because her crystalline notes allowed me to worry away at my central premise. In fact, one of her arias, Come Hope, from Beethoven's Fidelio, was playing as it first became clear to me. If a singer could shatter glass when her voice reproduced its resonant frequency, couldn't we shatter a tumour in the same way? By causing its cells to vibrate in sympathy, couldn't we turn it to dust? No need for the knife, just the correct dose of destructive energy delivered to growths crouched in the pelvis or breast or brain, or lodged in the lymph nodes like pearls. Come, hope, let not the final star of the weary fade away. While my mother slept, I remember, I placed a pile of books on the pedal of my father's grand piano, then lifted the lid and ran a finger across the taut strings. The instrument let out a soft, falling sigh. I peered inside the open cavity and smelled the mahogany and lacquer and wax and the secret chill of the wires. For a moment I feared the lid might fall on me, shut me away in that dark box, and I steadied it with my hand. Then I sang middle C, and the middle C wire vibrated, and I moved down the scale, note by note, and watched each string begin to move in turn, to quiver and blur as it recognised its own frequency in my voice. For all the earth was alive with energy, every atom of every single thing sang with its own resonance, and this was as true of flesh as it was of piano strings. Ah, oh, fantastic. Thank you. Um, 
nothing quite like hearing a, a writer read their own work. It really isn't. And, and, and soon after that, The Transparent Man is this model that Leonard goes to mm-hmm. see. Was that based on a, a natural Yes. Thing? So the tra- this was another kind of research moment where I thought, ah, yes, this belongs in the book. So um, The Transparent Man was this um, life-size human figure that was produced for an exhibition at the Dresden Hygiene Museum in the early 1930s. So he was life-size. He was, his body was kind of this clear plastic, and through the plastic you could see all the, the veins and arteries, the circulatory system, the nervous system, um, made out of over 12 kilometres of different coloured wires. And lights lit up um, on the various kind of plastic organs inside and and you could read about the different parts of the body and, and what they did. And he was a sensation um, when when he appeared at the museum for the first time. And, and it was kind of the first time that people had really had a sense of looking into themselves and, and being able to kind of see what went on under their skin, which obviously really appealed to me um, as a novelist, you know, thinking about, you know, talking about what makes a person tick and what motivates a person and what really goes on inside us and makes us behave the way that we do. And so in the book, Leonard, as a young medical student, goes to see um, the transparent man and the figure kind of stays with him and then kind of pops up at different points throughout the book. He, the, the pose that the transparent man was modelled in was um, this pose where he's holding his arms above his head and looking up to the sky or to the sun. And so you you can kind of um, interpret that pose in different ways. He might be, you know, praising God. He might be delighting in nature. Um, But he might also be praying um, for salvation or he might be begging for his life. And I saw that figure as a kind of counterpart to... The, the darkness of the figure that's carved from the oak. There's sort of um, two opposing um, tensions in the book, this figure of light and this figure of um, darkness that represents death. Um, I really wanted to have a, a period photograph of the transparent man on the cover, and I... I begged for it, but my publishers thought it was too creepy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's creepy. I think it's really beautiful. But I did, uh, th- so as I mentioned in that very opening paragraph, although not explicitly, the transparent man um, was destroyed uh, when Dresden was bombed, you know, in the, in the terrible fire bombing of Dresden late in the war. And that, that museum was badly hit and um, he was uh, destroyed then. There were other figures based on him that were made uh, in the mid-1930s. So there was one um, made in 1935 that still exists. And that I found out when I went to the um, Historical Museum in Berlin. I went there to see um, the last face because that's where that sculpture is held. And um, there was this kind of miraculous moment where I was rushing through these different galleries because I didn't have a lot of time left and I needed to see this one sculpture that I'd arranged with the museum to have a look at. And I was rushing through this gallery and I thought, wait a minute, that's the transparent man. And I didn't even know that he was held there. Not, not the original, obviously, but the 1935 model. And he was there in all his glory. It was incredible. 
the interesting thing about that transparent man was that he was made for an American audience. So he was sent to, I think it was San Francisco. And so the one difference between him and the one in the book is that he has no genitals. <laughs> I, I just guessed you were going to say that. Is it American? He has this, this action man sort of mound where everything should be. Yeah. <laughs> <The> censorship. <laughs> um, let's have a look at Dietrich. Now he's, he's based, loosely based on an officer. Um, why, yes. did you, why did you choose him and how close are they? So he is based on a real figure. He's based on a man uh, who was head of administration at um, Buchenwald. Originally, when I started writing the novel, that character was going to be the commandant of Buchenwald because I wanted him to be as powerful as possible so that there would kind of be as big an imbalance of power between him and Leonard as possible. But I didn't get very far with writing him as that character because that's a kind of easily identifiable, real historical figure to whom certain kind of well-known events happened. And so I decided quite early on that that wasn't really going to work because I was going to be sort of changing him far too much and it wouldn't be believable. And so I decided to give him the same role that the head of administration had. And he wasn't a particularly well-known man, although he was um, tried in the war crimes trials after the war. And he was sentenced to hang, but like most of them, escaped the noose and was released um, in the early 1950s. And, and once I'd made that decision, it actually made a whole lot more sense to me. And I'm so glad that I did, because it meant it kind of built his character for me. It meant that he um, was not an all-powerful figure. Yes, he was powerful, but he ended up having this um, kind of inferiority complex too, that he's never done quite as well as his boyhood friend who's now very high up in the Gestapo in Berlin and who has to sort of keep going cap in hand to asking for favours. And he's never got a real silver death's head ring um, from Himmler, which you know, very few of them were ever issued, and only those were really on this sort of amazing career trajectory in the SS ever got. And so um, his wife commissions a, a fake ring for him, which a lot of SS wives did. And so that, you know, those kind of little chinks in the armour um, made him a much more interesting character to me. And and he was he was. Deeply affected by the loss of the Goethe tree. He was. Wasn't he? Deeply, yes. deeply affected by that. Yes, so he was, you know, one of one of the many SS who, who kind of revered Goethe and revered that tree and thought that they were kind of fighting to recreate that kind of noble Germany when in fact they were kind of dismantling it bone by bone. So yeah, he, he kind of has this idea about himself that he's one kind of man and I wanted to allow him to expose himself with what he says and the kind of justifications he tries to make for his behaviour. So I, I, I read 6,000 pages of very blurry old photocopied, photocopied, photocopied trial transcripts from the, um, the trials that were held at Dachau where the 31, I think it was, um, Buchenwald accused were tried. And took note of the kind of language that he used and the kind of excuses that he made. And some of 
the words that come out of Dietrich's mouth are, are lifted directly from this man, um, Otto Barnevald's um, trial transcripts. So I was really taken by that. I've written some of them down. I'm just because we hear his story from interviews, you know, transcripts from his interviews held by his captors. So different. We have these three different perspectives and storytelling um, ways. And it says, "I'm not ashamed. I've got no reason to be ashamed. Um, all the real criminals, the ones who issued the orders, have taken the coward's way out, shot themselves, or poisoned themselves, or hanged themselves, and let people like me wait for the punishment." I mean, he was yeah. turning himself yeah. into the into the victim. He was really yeah. come on. Yeah. And yes, some of that passage are actual words from from Otto Barnevald here. Interesting, actually, and you're not the first one to say that um, the interviews that Dietrich is doing, so that is how his sections are presented. The Leonards are presented as letters to his daughter. Um, Dietrichs are presented as um, interviews taped in the 1950s after his release um, from prison. But interesting that you say he's being interviewed by his captors, because he's not. But, But quite a few readers have thought that. Yeah. I didn't really ever want to be clear about who was interviewing him. I, I knew it wasn't his captors. I knew that it was after his, um, after his release from prison, right after. But I kind of had in mind, and this is nowhere in the book, I don't expect readers to, to kind of um, think this too, because I don't drop any clues as to, as to that, but I kind of had in mind a fanatical kind of PhD student who might... Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> who might be interviewing him trying to find out, you know, what was his war experience and, and kind of is almost a little bit in awe of him. Yeah. Wow. I'll go and, go and reread that now because in my head, yeah. I, I know assumptions are dangerous things. Yeah. I apologise for that. Greta, then, his wife, I want to talk about too. I mean, again, one of the few things, or one of the aspects of humanity for Dietrich is he, he wants his wife to survive, you know. So mm. he is putting himself actually in a degree of danger as well as Leonard mm-hmm. by trying to protect him because he believes this machine will save Greta. She, yep. and, and she's written an imaginary diary, which I think is also a beautiful way of looking at it. But she said, I, I regret I hadn't kept a diary at the time. It's so all I can do is imagine what I might have written, which is, which is beautiful. And she, I mean, she's problematic, isn't she? Because yep. she's, she starts with a description of the house, you know, she lives off the, the fruits of the labour, and she is perhaps the most deliberately blind in, mm-hmm. in some ways, would mm-hmm. you say? Yes, she is. I don't know, I kind of thought of the characters as existing on this continuum of willful ignorance, and, and Greta is probably down the far end of that, Spectrum. So she is the SS wife who wants the beautiful house and who wants to fill it with beautiful children. And she knows, she knows that there is something really bad going on just over the fence over there. And you, could, you could smell the camp. The citizens down in Weimar, when the wind was blowing in the right direction, could smell the camp. They would complain about going out to pick apples from their trees in their gardens and ash coating the the fruit or their washing, getting dirty on the washing line, you know, terrible inconvenience for them. So the folk down in Weimar definitely knew. The SS wives definitely knew. There was a a zoo that um, the commandant had established a few metres from the camp fence, so probably from between me and the first row of the audience would be as far away as the zoo was from the prisoners' enclosure. 
And the commandant established that for the enjoyment of the SS and their families. And they had monkeys, and they had a wolf, and they had bears, they had a bear pit. Um, it sounded and, very sad the way you described it. Yeah. 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 Awful. And yeah, on weekends, the SS could bring their children there. And in part of the book, uh, Greta is, is kind of hesitant about... Um, taking her son there to see the animals because she knows that well, you can see right into the camp. You can see the prisoners. She's talking to another SS wife about this. And her friend, um, the other SS wife, says, well, yeah, of course you can see the prisoners. That, that's why it was put there, so the children could understand the difference between us and them. And, and yeah, that was a, a really deliberate decision. So there's no question that people like Greta knew what was going on. And even a bit later in, in the book, you know, I get the sense that she she kind of wishes everything. I think she says it, you know, wishes everything had been lost because really she just wanted to get out get out of there. You know, yeah. she, she's 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 sympathetic to a degree, but you still kind of want to give her a shake. Yeah, you definitely want to give her a shake. There is a, a kind of moment of small moment of partial redemption for her when she says to um, Leonard, you need me, don't you? Like she's, she's aware that she has to keep playing along and keep going along with the treatments that he's giving her, even if she thinks that she's not really getting better because she knows what the stakes are for him. She knows that her husband has said to him, if you save her, I will save you and your family, and if you don't, then you know there's no hope for you or for them. Yeah. Oh, impossible situation. I do want to talk about the role of the private reflections of 1,000 citizens of Weimar, mm-hmm. uh, which for me was like a Greek, a Greek chorus. Is that how you saw them too? I did, yeah. Yeah, yeah I did. I, I kind of toyed with that idea a little bit in The Wish Child with the two um, Berlin housewives, um, Frau Miller and Frau Müller, who sort of pop up during that novel to talk about what's going on in Berlin and what's going on in Germany in the war and what they are allowed and aren't allowed to say. Um, but I kind of wanted to amplify that to a thousand voices in this book. And again, that, that sort of grew from the research phase where I realised that um, on liberation of the camp, um, so before the end of the war, but after Buchenwald had been liberated at the start of April, uh, General Patton, the American General Patton, was so horrified by what, he found at Buchenwald that he ordered 1,000 citizens of Weimar to assemble the next morning in town and to be marched up the hill to see exactly what had been going on um, on their doorstep for the the last um, eight years or so. And so, yeah, as soon as I read that figure, 1,000 citizens, you know, that, that number 1,000 was really kind of resonant um, to the Nazis because they believed that their Reich would last for a 1,000 years. Um, and there was something really kind of spine-tingling about that thought of the citizens having the tables turned on them and and being forced to, um, to tour the camp um, over a period of hours. And um, there's, there's footage of that tour and... Shockingly, at the start of it, when they're assembling down in Weimar, they're all wearing their best clothes and they're laughing and they're chatting as if they're going on some kind of spring outing because spring was just starting to to, to um, break and 
and suddenly the weather was lovely after this brutal winter and the, you know, the end was in sight with the war, even though, you know, what kind of end was in sight. Um, but the violets were starting to spring up and, and it's really strange to see that footage and to see their faces. And then you see them as they pass through the gates into the camp and they start to see what was going on there. So they're, they're shown um, this sort of table of um, medical specimens and they're taken through the prisoner barracks and the prisoners are still there and they're taken through the kind of the worst of the worst parts of the camp where people are too weak to stand and you see their faces start to change and you see them start to, well, one woman faints and has to be you know, carried away by two prisoners and it, it was really fascinating to me to see that change. So I wanted them as a presence in the book and I wanted them also to be making excuses for themselves because they know that after the war things did not look good for the citizens of Weimar. Yeah. Coming off the back of The, the Wish Child, which was also you know, a heartbreaker of a book, did you have to... I know you've been thinking about this and you had all the ideas, but do you have to kind of prepare yourself mm. to, to write all the research that you've done? Um, but if, as a writer, you know, how do you look after y- yourself when you're writing about, I mean, the true atrocities and horrors, inhumanity, you know, yeah. is, is, is such an extreme example of that. Yeah. How, do you, how do you look after yourself? Uh, with cats, usually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and by by writing a children's book that had nothing to do with Nazis. Jiffy the Cat Detective is awesome. We spoke about that on the show. Yeah, Yeah, I guess in one way I felt as if I did have to give myself breaks from the kind of the weight of that material. And I was sort of deep in it for a long, long time. You know, The Wish Child took me 13 years to write. This book, not as long. But, you know, it was well over a decade that I was kind of immersed in that material. So I did have to kind of snatch lighter moments for myself and kind of come out of my office at home and just walk down to the lounge and play with one of the cats or play with our daughter or, you know, watch Married at First Sight. (laughs) But I also didn't want to distance myself from it, you know, to to talk about remoteness and, and closeness again. I didn't want to distance myself from it too much. I wanted to stay immersed in it because I wanted it to keep hurting and I want people to keep remembering those events. You know, there was a really shocking survey, I think last year, it was quite recent, of um, a 1,000 young Americans aged 18 to 39 who asked about um, Jewish suffering in World War II, and two-thirds of them had no knowledge of the six million Jews who died, didn't know about them. Two-thirds of them. I'm trying to remember the other shocking statistics. Half of them could not name a single... World War II concentration camp or ghetto. A quarter of them thought that the Holocaust was a myth or had been exaggerated. So, you know, I don't want to get too far from that material. I don't want people to to forget what happened. There are none so blind as those who will not see again, you know, that situation. Yeah. Um, I have promised time for questions, but I can sneak in a little bit. What are you working on now? Oh, so, um, yes, I decided to do a complete about-face now that I've got Nazi Germany well and truly out of my system, I think. I am I'm just about finished, actually. Um, a book set in, set in central Otago, which is 
very loosely based on the um, sheep station that my husband grew up on. But it's about um, a, a, a husband and wife who are farmers there and have an unhappy marriage, um, a violent marriage. And um, one day the wife brings home this magpie chick that has fallen out of its nest and she decides that she wants to protect this little creature and raise it. And so she does that against the husband's wishes who thinks that magpies are pests and should all be shot. And the bird develops this amazing ability to speak and starts to become this internet sensation and and maybe the thing that could earn them enough money to save their failing farm, except the husband can't stand it. So, yeah, I had a huge amount of fun um, writing that book, which is all narrated from the point of view of the bird. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. And and I, I did promise you that, and I wanted to also mention the Sargison Prize, because along with everything else, you, you teach and you're real... Um, champion of short story writing. I mean, you've award-winning short stories. You're nominated this year for more prizes. But you're a great believer in them. We're, we're damn good at them here in New Zealand. We, we really have got a fantastic history yeah. of them. But why, why, why do you love them enough to put so much effort into setting up the Sargison Prize, which is still open for entries, by the way? It is. <laughs> you know, they're, they're not just scraps taken from the cutting room floor of novels. They're, they're kind of poetic uh, in their own right. They're kind of a really beautiful kind of feast in one sitting, I think, is the thing that I love about short stories, that you can achieve a a great intensity in the form that you can't in a novel. And so, yes, I um, established the Sargisson Prize a couple of years ago because the the, um, lamented... Catherine Mansfield um, short story competition that had been sponsored by the BNZ for decades had been disestablished. So it's sponsored by the University of Waikato and entries are open until the end of June. If you want to um, enter, just Google Sargison Prize and, and it will pop up. The first prize is $6,000 and there's also a really great prize for secondary school students. I really want to encourage younger writers as well in the form. So there's a $500 prize for secondary school students but they also get to come to the University of Waikato in summer for a one week long writing residency where they, they get to live in the halls of residence and have all their meals catered and they're assigned um, a writing mentor to work with for a week. Yeah, the lovely Patricia Grace um, as your judge. That's and I've seen Cousins too, which of course if you haven't seen Cousins, you have to see that too. It's a fabulous film. Yeah, we're so lucky to have her as this year's judge. Yeah. yeah. Oh, there's a, there's a, but there's such a generosity of spirit I find amongst our writers, you know what I mean? And uh, the same with you setting up the prize. It's it's a beautiful country for our writers, I think. It's the, the right size. There's a little healthy enough competition, but actually it all feels like a Fano, you know, like a family. It does. It was. It's so lovely being back in Dunedin, city of literature. I just um, stopped right. at Countdown on the way here to get a copy of the ODT because Rob Kidd said lovely things about this, and one needs a copy for one's archives. One does. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, so I was standing at the checkout with my festival bag and, and lanyard, accidentally on display, and the. Um, the checkout operator said to me, oh, are you involved in the Writers Festival? And I said, yeah. And she said, what's your name? And she looked at my name. Oh, I've, I've read some of your books. And she started to do this big gush, which was so lovely. Oh. It doesn't happen at the Countdown in Hamilton. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We have time. I love these moments. We've got a question here in the front, please. And then afterwards, the lady in three rows back. Hi there. You alluded... Um, oh, also, thank you. Um, you alluded to... Um, when you're writing your historical novels, not um, straying too far from the truth of a historical person mm-hmm. and 
you know, that sort of thing. Um, for for budding writers of historical fiction um, who are desperate to know the rules of engagement, <laughs> can you tell us from your perspective as a historian, but also a writer of such novels, what the really crucial do's and don'ts rules of engagement are? Mm. I think everyone's rules are different. Um, for me, one of the most important things is to include really specific detail. I think it's easy to kind of um, go too big or go too broad with historical fiction and to try to kind of write these kind of sweeping epics that don't ever drill right down to the human level. So I think it's really important to keep your characters human. And for me, the way of doing that is to include very specific details. So um, things with um, Dietrich, my SS character, for instance, included, um, you know, finding out about um, the exact kind of rations that he um, approved buying for the camp. So there's there's one um, document that talk, I, I think it's in his um, trial transcript where he's talking about, well, there was this one time where I bought an entire train load of, of fish for the camp. And I thought, well, that's, that's really weird and, and sounds kind of gross. But I'll include that because it's much more interesting than him just saying, oh, I always made sure that they were well fed. Yeah. Or another really quick example, which I'll give you, um, is in one of the prisoner memoirs I read to get that side of the story. The prisoner um, recalled another prisoner making uh, an infusion of colt's foot, so this, this plant, this medicinal plant, um, when, when he was sick, um, the prisoner made him an infusion of colt's foot from leaves that he'd picked from the, um, beside the crematorium. So, you know, those kind of really specific events can, can bring the characters and the, and the setting to life, I think. Yeah. I think one of the lovely things you do actually, Catherine, just while we move the microphone there, is with historical detail is sometimes you'll read a book and, and everything has been thrown in. Yeah. You get a sense that the, the, the writer has done so much research and they've fallen so in love with it that they, they want to have too much. So I guess it's that balance, isn't it? I was quite fat. No. <laughs> but it's character based. Yeah, yeah. But you know, you know the sort of ones that I mean, don't you? Yeah, it's I do. Just like, yeah. it's, it's just. Too, too much, so it's yeah. like, I guess it's about peering back. It's doing your research, but not letting it overwhelm the people. You know, the people. That's the people, right. The people. Yeah, yeah. Kind yeah. of plucking out the gems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. it's that story based. That's my observation as a reader. And question here. Um, I was really struck by what you said about the thousand citizens, and I haven't read the book yet. Um, and it's almost like you feel the same weight of responsibility of the gentleman who said, "You guys need to come here, and you need to be marched through here," mm -hmm. and you're doing that with a modern audience. When I was at Auschwitz-Birkenau, there's graffiti on the walls. There's a trend of concentration camp, um, railway tracks, selfies. Yeah. And how, I mean, obviously that makes people feel, but how, like, do you think you're going to be called back? Like, you've closed the book on it, but things like that survey happen, and it's like people are forgetting or people have never known. And do you think that there'll come a point again where you just have to keep trying to bring people back and to other atrocities as well? I do think so. I think in Germany, um, that process of forgetting is not happening. Um, and I have always been struck by and have admired Germany's kind of continued work on coming to terms with the past. You know, they even have an expression for it, Verkangenheitsbewältigung, one of those long German compound words. 
And certainly in Weimar, I didn't have the sense that those citizens are the same citizens who kind of turned their backs on it. I got to know one, you know, modern-day citizen of Weimar, a a local historian, um, who couldn't have been more helpful to me. And, you know, when I asked him things like, could you actually see the camp from Weimar? He would say to me, if you go to this particular house on this particular street, stand outside their letterbox and look, you, you know, you'll be able to see the bell tower that was um, erected as part of the memorial and a, a thing called, a structure called the Bismarck Tower used to stand there. He said, that's all that you could see from Weimar, but, you know, but you could smell it all, but, but the farms um, on the other side of the hill, at the base of the hill, they could definitely see it. They looked straight up. So, you know, there's definitely... All throughout my research for this and and in in correspondence with um, the Buchenwald Memorial and and the chief archivist there um, over a period of years, I always felt so welcomed and um, that that everything was open and at my disposal that I wanted and that I asked for. So that, that fills me with hope. Yeah. Yeah. America's a whole other story, though. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Question at the back for you? Catherine, you're, you're so good at explaining the details of the book. Were you ever tempted to have Dietrich work on the ark? He makes the animals and never does oh, the, the ark. Uh, so, yes. So thank you for that question. Um, one of Dietrich's hobbies is wood carving, and he whittles a, a collection of Noah's Ark animals for his son. And, and throughout the book, the boy sort of keeps saying, when are you going to make me the ark? When am I going to get the boat? And no, I wasn't ever tempted to um, allow Karl Heinz to get the thing that he wanted, to get the toy that he wanted. I thought, no, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just keep that from you, you little brat. <laughs> um, but also, you know, symbolically, the ark is the thing that, that saves uh, and that rescues. And um, I didn't want that to be available so there's a scene where um, Karl Heinz, having no ark, forces the animals into the carriages of his toy train, um, and I wanted that to speak kind of obliquely about um, prisoners' experiences of being rammed into cattle cars. Yeah. Mm. Time for one more question. Lucky last at the front here. Uh, yeah, th- thank you very much. I'm um, really interested in at the very outset of you kind of con- contemplating or conceiving this knowledge before you've done any research, h- how much of a shape of the, the book do you have in your head, if, if any at all? Mm. And, and during that process of doing your research, how, you know, what's the process for developing that, that book? And, and I'm kind of guessing that I mean, you don't just think, goodness, I think I'll write a book about it. <laughs> you, you, know, you must have some general knowledge that gives you some glimmer of shape of the book before you start. Yeah, Yeah. Um, with this one, the plot kind of did come to me fully formed very early on, which hasn't happened with other books. So just that really sort of central idea of part Jewish doctor builds electrotherapy machines to, to treat cancer, decides it doesn't work, but then is forced to um, resurrect it to treat a patient that he doesn't believe he can save. So that came to me really early on when I was researching um, electrotherapy. With all of my books, I write, not deliberately, it's just how it's worked out, I write the ending um, also quite early on. 
And I wrote um, the final passages for this book, I don't know, maybe when I was a quarter of the way into it. I think it's important for me to always have a really clear idea of where the story is heading emotionally and the kind of um, emotional note that I want it to end on. And then how I get there is a whole mess of post-it notes and notes in the Word document to myself saying, insert really amazing, powerful, moving scene here. (laughs) 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 Usually I find... Um, With all my books, by the time I'm about two-thirds of the way through word count-wise, I can't kind of hold that huge unwieldy thing in my head anymore. So that's the point at which I start to to map it out and to shuffle around the scenes and decide on the final order. I wish I was the kind of writer who started at page one and methodically worked through till the end and knew where they were going. Um, I've tried writing like that, and it just dies on the page. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that is our time, sadly. I need another hour, and I just about get through my questions. Please join me in thanking Catherine Chidgy. Thanks, Catherine. This Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival podcast was brought to you with funding from Copyright Licensing New Zealand and the expertise of ORFM. The festival also offers thanks to our major funders, Creative New Zealand, the Dunedin City Council, and the Otago Community Trust. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.